1: Uh, is the last in our worship series, Deep Water, wherein we've been contemplating our baptism. And maybe you've caught on by now. What we've really been doing is just reading more stories in the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) But we're reading them um, as if, you know, sequentially, they come each after Jesus' baptism, after Jesus has said yes, all the way yes, to God's subversive reign, And after Jesus has had an infusion of power by the Holy Spirit from on high. And so we've been reading these stories about Jesus' early ministry saying, okay, so this is what the baptized life looks like. His and ours. So we pick up tonight in Luke chapter 7. This story follows immediately after the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, which we spent the last couple Sundays looking at together. Luke 7, 1 through 10. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word. And let my servant be healed, for I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have, regrettably, a content consideration for the sermon tonight. There will be a non-graphic, historical discussion of the sexual exploitation of a child. It's about five minutes in. It's only going to last a couple minutes um, if you need to move around, get some headphones, exit the room, it's, it's all good. Or just zone out. That's also fine. Turn the volume down. See, reading the Bible used to be so uncomplicated. <laughs> here, here in Luke 7, who doesn't love it? We are served a sticky, sweet story about Jesus' compassion for the sick and his power to make them all feel better, dipped in a powerful man's gentle concern for his valuable employee, every virtuous capitalist understanding that the workers are your greatest asset, and seasoned with a dash of anti-Semitism, as Jesus is heard to say that this Gentile centurion is doing way better religion than Jesus' own Jewish kin, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Oh, we gobbled that stuff by the spoonful where I came from. But. You knew there was a big but in here somewhere, right? Let's identify three complications that have seriously screwed with my sense of taste for the story of the centurion and his formerly sick slave. First. What we have here is a slaveholder and an enslaved person. The centurion was a person of means. He was a Roman citizen who could buy and sell a whole underclass of non Roman citizens, AKA human beings, against their will, obviously. I appreciate that the New Revised Standard Version, the English language translation that we use in worship here most of the time, mostly identifies the sick person in this story as an enslaved person, or slave, rather than a servant, like some other translations do. NIV, I have my eye on you. Because it's important that we not trick ourselves, especially those of us who are white, and would perhaps prefer to erase the memory of our own nation's original sin, of the enslavement of Africans for our economic advancement. The centurion of this story comes to Jesus with the problem of a sick worker whom he owns, an asset on his personal ledger, and asks Jesus for the restoration of the enslaved person's value, a slave whom he valued highly. The narrator says and an economic reading of that value is the mainstream understanding here so why doesn't jesus say anything about that why Knowing as we do that he, Jesus, valued enslaved persons in a wholly non-economic way, but rather valued them as whole human beings worthy of God's attention and love and help as much as any human being, believing as we do that his was a subversive mission to embody the reign of God wherever he went, rolling through town and countryside in a cloud of God getting everything God wants, Why does he not have even a pithy word to say to challenge the centurion's capitulation to the racist and classist systemic degradation of some human beings treated as commodities in a corrupt economy? That was one question. It was almost a whole page of this manuscript. (laughs) Here is a shorter one. How happy do you think that enslaved person is to be healed so they can go back to work for their enslaver? A sister in Christ who is black has said, My spirit recoils to hear the normalizing of enslavement in the Bible, but never so painfully as when I hear it on the lips of Jesus. Here, Jesus does not speak of enslavement, but his silence is a deafening roar, and the story gets a lot less sweet when we can hear it. Second, what we have here is a slaveholder who identifies the enslaved person as his boy, or his pais in Greek. This is actually obscured in translation, even in my beloved NRSV. In verse seven of Luke's telling, when the centurion sends his friends to tell Jesus he doesn't need to travel all the way to his home, the message is, quote, only speak the word and let my servant be healed. But the word there is not servant. It is pais, P-A-I-S in English which in most contexts simply means a pre-adolescent child. With masculine articles, as here, it should be rendered boy. And in the context of the Greco-Roman economy of enslavement, a first-century hearer of this story would assume that the centurion and his boy are in a homoerotic sexual relationship. Such, rela- such arrangements in the Roman military were common and condoned as soldiers were not allowed to marry during their military service. A reason that, even as I write it and even as I say it, is ridiculous on so many levels. Just think about it. And the exploitation of enslaved children was part and parcel of that evil economy, as our country's own recent history of the same would demonstrate. Now, some queer commentators on this story have noted positively that Jesus here is no doubt aware that the centurion thinks of this enslaved child as his lover, and yet has not a word to say about that, thus adding to the catalog of evidence that queer love and queer identity were not concerns for Jesus. Listen, church, that is just not where we want to land with this story. I don't doubt that it's true that the centurion values highly this particular boy for more than economic reasons. Another way to translate that description of the centurion's boy would be a slave who was precious to him, which helps us get beyond that economic valuation. And I am glad and grateful for the queer researchers and scholars who have helped us see what has been hidden But that does not make this a story of queer love, nor of queer identity. The centurion's use of a child for sexual gratification, even one that in his warped, pederastic imagination he has come to care for, is... Well, I don't know what word is strong enough to finish that sentence. Horrifying. Sickening. Wrong. Just wrong. So why, why does Jesus not run directly to that centurion's house to turn over some tables and set some captives free, undam the flowing waters of justice, open a can of divine whoop-ass, get God everything God wants? Why? And this story that I once found sweet is spoiled, past its shelf life, growing rancid. Third, the centurion is a military officer in an occupying army, stationed in a village to keep the peace by keeping an eye on the peasants who live there, toiling to pay the taxes that make the occupying empire rich and richer. Let's be clear. The centurion is Russian. Jesus and his disciples are Ukrainian. The centurion's predecessors under the orders of the emperor he has sworn allegiance to bombed and gunned and marched and tanked and aerated their way to Capernaum and brutally occupied every square mile of land Jesus ever set foot on. Jesus was born under the boot of empire. Jesus died with the empire's knee on his neck. You know what I'm going to ask, right? Right? Why doesn't Jesus do something, say something, at least acknowledge that the centurion, through his faith in Jesus' ability to get him what he wants, is strong, is working every day in direct opposition to the shalom God intends for God's people, Jew or Gentile, Ukrainian or Russian, then and now? And why do the VRPs, the very religious persons, bend their knee to this guy, vouching for his worthiness to Jesus? And Jesus says nothing to them. The very same VRPs who will later testify against Jesus in an empirical court, vouching that he is a threat to the emperor's regime. Now the story doesn't just taste bad. I think somebody dropped a roofie in there. And every time I read it, my head swims and my stomach turns over and my heart just races with panic. I lose time. It's a bad trip. So now what are we going to do, church? Steph said I was going to make some sense out of this. I I don't want to overpromise here. (laughs) But let me outline three possibilities broadly. One is easy. We just let it all go believing with Nietzsche and Marx and all the rest that religion is inherently corrupt, serving the powerful by keeping the oppressed quiet. Here is Jesus, sucking up to the establishment, ignoring injustice, becoming an example to all his do-nothing followers for centuries to come. And listen, there may be some here tonight for whom that feels like the truest thing. Maybe you have even reasoned that religion, powered by a sacred text that includes stories like this one, just serves to put distance between you and the God you want so badly to believe in. And if that's you, and if you're here, I want you to know how welcome you are and how grateful I am. People like you have helped people like me take a hard look at the stuff my own religious upbringing did not want me to see and have helped me reckon with my own lack of integrity around the ugliness that Christianity has both perpetrated and ignored until this very day. Another possibility is the one I imagine the religion of my youth would offer. I call it the deliberately and advantageously naive reading. Such a deliberately and advantageously naive reading of scripture receives every biblical story at face value, so long as your face is white and Western and wealthy, and thus concerned way more with personal piety, the centurion's faith, also my own, than systemic justice. In this reading, Jesus himself must also be naive, (laughs) unable to see past the centurion's compliments of his ministry to the nefarious self interest reinforced by the empire he works for. There are a lot of powerful people out there wearing the Christian confession, hoping that Jesus can't see through them either. It's in their best interest to keep Jesus naive. In this reading, all the world's problems can be solved by most of us just minding our own business most of the time with a little sprinkle of random acts of kindness, the manifestations of small joys in one-on-one human interactions every day by being nice, nicer, less mean and pragmatic because after all, what are we really supposed to do about any of these things? God will sort it out eventually. Finally, the place I've landed for tonight, to be transparent, finally, is the ongoing and difficult practice of figuring out what to take up and what to let go. Every time I confront again the testimony of my ancestors in faith. So, what if, as in this story, I could let go my idea that every move Jesus ever made was the gold standard, exemplary, A+++, plus plus plus, the very best answer to life's biggest questions for all time, forever, amen. And what if I could take up the possibility of Jesus as a companion on this difficult road, navigating the complexities of corrupt systems in solidarity with those of us whose hearts break over the world's brokenness and live in a perpetual state of doing the best we can with what we've got. And what if I could let go my wishful thinking that Jesus, in his, I don't know, eight or nine months of sandals-on-the-ground ministry, could have, or should have, waved his magic God wand and repaired all that brokenness everywhere and forever. Amen. And what if I could take up the possibility that just like us, Jesus sometimes faced situations where there's really no good way forward for those of us with limited human capacity. So you pick the least worst option. You let today's worries be enough for today without losing sight of the faith claim that the arc of the moral universe is long and bends toward justice. And did I mention that it's long? What if I could let go the demand that a first-century Palestinian, a 2,000-year-old ancient, should have been as woke then as we are now, we who have taken 2,000 years to even begin to reckon, reckon with our own baptized reality, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male and female, we whose anti-Semitism and white supremacy and gender and sexual identity hierarchy still plague us every day, colonizing even the wokest mind so that our prejudices and privilege and pride are so deeply embedded that we may never get completely free of them. God help us. And what if I could take up the possibility that the only reason I know to lament All that is wrong in the story in Luke chapter 7 is because of the Holy Spirit in me, in us, the spirit that remains, remains and keeps working, and keeps clearing our heads, and opening our eyes, and softening our hearts, and empowering our own spirits, and that that spirit is the spirit of the living Christ, the spirit of Jesus raised from the dead, the spirit of Jesus who is now our companion as we confront our own centurions. And what if I could take up the possibility that the story in Luke 7 is intended as a provocative beginning, not a finished, settled matter, not the final and definitive word of God for the people of God, but a door that Jesus has opened to see and show love to a person he should have despised for all the reasons that we've named but instead he holds that door open for us too, asking whether we might come on through to a place where the work is not nearly finished, to a place where we will be employed in the getting for God more of what God wants. What if the baptized life, yours and mine and Jesus's too, is a life lived in that tension between what is and what is yet to come, between the brokenness and the beauty, between the now and the not yet, with as much
0: grace as we possibly can. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.